me mets à quatre en moindre signe, je me tais. C'est tout comme si Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Collop. Episode 125. During the broadcast of Il Trovatore on March 29, 1969, one of the intermission features was Biographies in Music, hosted by Francis Robinson. The subject was Compromario tenor Alessio de Paulis. In addition to hearing from Mr. de Paulis himself, the listener will hear excerpts from Rigoletto, Il Barbiere di Sevilla, Turandot, Andrea Chenier, Madame Butterfly, La Pericole, and Tosca. Great Intermission brings us the season's fifth chapter of Biographies in Music with Francis Robinson, an assistant manager of the Metropolitan Opera, which he joined in 1948 as tour director. Mr. Robinson lectures and writes extensively about the theatre and music world. His book, Enrico Caruso, his life in pictures, beautifully illustrated with more than 200 photographs and drawings, has been a favourite with opera lovers since its publication 12 years ago. Mr. Robinson's musical biography today, illustrated as usual by recordings, will be of the Metropolitan Opera tenor, Alessio de Paulis. Mr. Robinson. Thank you, Mr. Cross. Comprimario is one of those N-words around the opera house. It's used only by house personnel and the truly initiated among the buffs and identifies the singers usually heard in supporting parts. Literally, it means with the best. The subject of our biography today is not just with the best, he was of the best. You won't find a colleague or a critic or a patron who won't agree there was no finer artist in the company than Alessio de Paulus. Rarely, very rarely, does a comprimario ever graduate to leading roles. Even more rarely, in fact I can think of only three examples, does a leading singer ever become a comprimario. Alessio de Paulis made his debut as the Duke in Rigoletto at Bologna in 1919. In the same role, he made his debut at La Scala under Toscanini. He also sang Fenton in Falstaff with the Maestro, but his real chance came when the Maestro and Lauri Volpi had a row. Lauri Volpi held a high note too long, and the Maestro just left him up there. 
The Nordic tenor was banished forthwith, but he also had his say. No need to fire me, Lowry Volpe said to Toscanini. I'll never sing with you again. So Alessio de Paulis went with Toscanini and the whole company of La Scala on its historic tour to Berlin and Vienna, and here he is singing the Duke's aria from the third act of Rigoletto. When I borrowed these records from Mr. de Paulis's daughter, she apologized for their condition. They were all we had, she said, referring to the years when she and her mother and brother were caught by the war in Italy. So it's a pretty well-used Parmi Vedi Le Lacrima we're going to hear. Alessio de Paulis was born in Rome. He studied in Venice with Gemma Bellincioni, the first Santuzza in Cavalleria Rusticana. He put in six years military service, and his duty was dirigibles, which may account for the boldness, sometime to the point of outlandishness, of his characterizations. Perhaps he was always a reckless type to begin with. In any event, I have a picture of him made between that debut in Bologna the year after the armistice, and those rigolettos in Berlin and Vienna. It's a souvenir program of Diaghilev's Monte Carlo season of 1924. Diaghilev, you know, produced opera as well as ballet, and he worshipped Gounod. Here's a full-page picture of Alessio de Paulus as Vincent in Marais. He was always elegant, even at his most comic. And in this next record, he sounds as he looks in that picture. As you listen to it, remember de Paulus also sang the sergeant in the Barber of Seville. His crimson nose was like a call to arms, and the baby blue feather in his hat was always a quiver. He spread terror among his men, but he also dozed on duty, so completely that Rosina in the finale rested her embroidery hook with its needlepoint on his head. But when this record was made, de Paulus was doing romantic leads, and here he is as the young Count Almaviva in the Barber of Seville. <laughs> Dimmi adorate, 
But even the seal of approval of Toscanini couldn't convince so wise a man as Alessio de Paulus that he was a Lauri Volpi. So he set out early to become the greatest character actor of his time. That's what Irving Culloden, in his considered judgment, called him, the greatest character actor of his time. In an interview ten years ago on these broadcasts, de Paulus was asked about his art, and that's the only word for it, art. Mm. First, I pay careful attention to the conductor and stage director. But for myself, I don't work out anything before the performance. I have no ideas. Always I improvise. For some reason I cannot explain, I never know what I'm going to do, how I will act until I am completely dressed in my costume, with the wig, the makeup, everything. Then, when I look in the mirror and see what I look like, then I know what kind of character I must be. It just happens suddenly. Oh, yes? You never heard Toscanini say he didn't know what he was going to do, that it just happened suddenly? The only two people I've ever known who varied so little as to Paulus from performance to performance are Ina Clare and Lynn Fontaine, the greatest players of comedy of their time. The timing of all three was deadly. And the only men I can compare with de Paulus are W.C. Fields and Bert Lahr. I don't even include Chaplin. Chaplin always, at some point, made you feel sorry for him. Perhaps that has its place in comedy. But Fields, Lahr, and de Paulus were merciless and asked no quarter. De Paulus had a slight shake but he was the kind of man who could turn a liability into an asset. Someone, once diagnosing the art of Beatrice Lilly, observed she usually had something loose. There was a particularly unruly gardenia on an outrageous hat. Well, D.P., as we all affectionately called him, more often than not had something shaking, like the curved gold feather on the emperor's crown in Turandot. Who of us who has seen it, can ever forget Act Two, Scene Two of Puccini's last opera as staged by the Metropolitan. There, center stage, is Cecil Beaton's fairy tale staircase, majestic, but at the same time crowned by a never-never land pavilion. At the end of an overpowering procession, the old emperor is borne in through clouds of incense on a golden throne only slightly less than celestial, May our emperor live 10,000 lives, the throng sings, and prostrates itself to the ground, crying, Glory to thee. There's a fanfare, followed by a silence, and here begins a scene, in the words of Spike Hughes, of astonishing simplicity and dramatic power created by Puccini's inspired characterization of the old emperor. A fearful oath binds him to his daughter and has made his scepter drip with blood. Enough of blood, he says to the unknown young prince. Go, young man. Con voce stanca da vecchio decrepito, Puccini orders for this passage in his score with the weary voice of a decrepit old man. Irving Culloden once said the public listening to Pagliacci, by some transference, always thought they were hearing Caruso. In the same way, De Paulis was the old emperor. Quattro cenni costringi, 
was a miracle of order. His closest friend in the company, George Chekhanovsky, says he squeezed out just enough grease paint on his palette for a particular spot or line, whereas his, George's palette, was always a mess. He and George had a little game when the company arrived in a town. George would rush to a taxi, get to the hotel ahead of the hounds, and sign in the two of them. DP followed with the luggage and they were comfortably ensconced in their quarters while the rest of the troop was forming a weary line across the lobby to the registration desk. A great cook himself, D.P. knew the best restaurants in the most obscure town, and all you had to do was follow him and Chekhanovsky, and you dined like royalty. He didn't long suffer fools, and his vocabulary of invective was formidable. He came to us just 30 years ago this season, and he died on his way from his home on Long Island to a rehearsal at the old Metropolitan Opera House. It was a wintry day, fearful weather, and he lost control of his car. In his 26 years at the Metropolitan, he sang more than a 1,000 times, 1,192 to be exact, in 48 roles of 40 operas. In Andrea Chenier, he was the spy, Incredibile. It's the French Revolution, you remember, and everybody is spying on everybody else, servants on their masters and so on. Chenier, incredibly, says, I will watch him. No, no me inganno, era proprio con lei la bella bionda. Ho scovato la traccia. La cittadina versi fare sospetto di corruzione non spontanea. Guardo Chenier di sott'occhi. Osservarla. Andrea Chenier, per qualche ora in attesa, con febbrilanzia evidente, osservarlo. He was often the season's record breaker. In 1955-56, he sang 116 times in 22 weeks. Everything he did was important. Even the list of Chocho San's relatives in Butterfly. La suocera, la nonna, lo zio Pozzo, che non ci degnerà di sua presenza. E cugini, le cugini, mettiamo fra gli ascendenti, e Nicola Vera, un due nozine. Quanto la discendenza provvederà alla sai, vostra he created tradition. He will be imitated as long as he is remembered. And Cyril Richard met his match in Pericole in the old prisoner with his little penknife. Shh! I am escaping from prison. Not a word, please. 
For 12 years, I've been shut up in this jail. And the reason? Nobody knows. 12 years. But I've been occupied every moment. These walls are thick. But with my little penknife, I dug my way to freedom. Now, only one wall remains. Twelve years more, and I shall be free. I hear a sound. I'll be back later. Borsa in Rigoletto, Balzacchi in Rosencavalier, the third Jew in Salome, the first Philistine in Samson and Delilah, Vesponi in La Serva Padrona, Tinka in Il Tabaro, Spoleto in Tosca. He was the personification of evil. You knew he actually enjoyed his job of delivering up victims to his elegant boss, the chief of police, Scarpia. His shoulders were hunched almost to his ears. His face was sallow his head and brow covered with slick black hair, and his cane seemed to become part of him. He used it to cover the corpse of Mario with his cape, a piece of business other artists tried to copy, but none could ever bring off the insinuation of it. And he made his voice thin, malicious, which went with his eyes darting back and forth. Nothing escaped him. In this record, the scopier is Frank Guerrera, Sant'Ignazio m'aiuta, della signora seguimmo la traccia, giunti a un'ermavilletta tra le fratte perduta, e la ventrò, ne si sola ben presto, allor scavalco lesto il moro del giardino e miei cagnotti, e piombo in casa. Quel bravo scoletta, Fiuto, razzolo, frugo. Eh, Angelotte? Non si è trovato? A cane, a traditore, c'è di basilisco, a volta Gesù. C'era il pittore. Carvaradossi. E sa dove l'altro s'asconde. Ogni suo gesto, ogni accento tradia, tal beffarda ironia, che io lo trassi in arresto. Meno male. Two different roles in Traviata, the gardener in Gastoni, the messenger in Trovatore, the fool in Wozzeck. What a list. And each of them a perfect, gleaming jewel, flawlessly cut and highly polished. He was faithful over the few things, which made him master over many. I think a survey of Alessio de Paulus's most honorable career drives home three things. First, that the Metropolitan is a family, close-knit and loyal. Second, that as much as the galaxy of international names, which is our heritage and our tradition, the strength of the Metropolitan is in the attention it gives to every role. And finally, as a great impresario once put it, there are no small roles, only small artists. Thank you for listening to the Operatic Past Cast. Visit the website at 
operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop. <laughs>